and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for a very special episode of La Jete and Twelve Monkeys, Contrarian's Corner style. We'll see. Very <laughs> special. Eye of the Beholder, etc., etc. But hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, cohort, my buddy Julio. Uh, today we're going to be doing a little bit of time traveling, it would seem. All over the place. Within a movie and then outside of the movie. Specifically back to 1962 and 1995 for uh, some series of photos that I guess was <laughs> supposed to be a movie. Somebody's and then photo an actual, album. Yeah, and then an actual movie that came out uh, 30 years later. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen way more impressive photos on Instagram every day. We're spoiled by technology today. These photos are in black and white, Alex. <laughs> they don't even have color. They don't even move. And there's yeah. no like catchy pop song that plays in the background of them. <laughs> and they don't have Bruce Willis in them. No. But uh, this is all part of the continuing patron takeover. Uh, we'll get to who brought this to us, who put this on our desk in just a moment. Uh, but we'll go ahead and finish up our introduction. Again, we are the Contrarians here on our little show. We like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, one of those shiny red tomatoes, sometimes accompanied with that certified fresh IP, and make a case for maybe why that rating is a, a bit unbalanced, and uh, uh, talk about some of the misconceptions that could come from uh, that rating. And that could be in the form of bad acting, bad storytelling, uh, questionable direction, score, whatever it takes to get the job done. Uh, conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Certified Fresh. We usually shoot for about 30% and below. And as you could guess, we'll make a case for that film's positive merit and the things about it that should be celebrated. Be it underrated acting, bold storytelling, good score, good soundtrack, uh, good cinematography. You know, We've pulled the proverbial rabbit out of the hat more than once on here, so it can be done. Uh, being that 12 Monkeys falls in the fresh category of 88% and as does La Jete at 93%. A lot of race pinkies. <laughs> yes, very hoity-toity. Uh, in the first half, we'll be arguing against these ratings and bringing these movies down to size. This may be a tall task for Julio and I think we'll get, get to why in the second half. That'll be a bit more interesting. Uh, but 
that comprises the first part of our podcast, the first half, uh, part one of every episode, which we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie du jour, the movie we're discussing, in this case, 12 Monkeys, and it's short film that influenced it from France many, many years ago. They just have to hang around for the second half, part two of the episode. That is correct. Part two of every episode, the aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel about the movies that we're covering. We forget about the tomato meter. This is just about our experience watching uh, whatever we're covering. We stop pretending, we we drop the gimmick, and we just tell you how we watch the movie. Sometimes it's for the very first time, like in the case of uh, La Jete here, Alex Knight, completely the... I wouldn't say back row blind because we knew that they had to do with 12 Monkeys, but still, it was like a very, very new experience. And then 12 Monkeys, which I think that we make a 12 Monkeys joke every 10 episodes or so in the show. So Accurate. Both both extremes, uh, much like Bruce Willis's career, who you were explaining uh, what we do in this show. And I'm like, you know, we've we've had some rotten Bruce Willis movies. We've had some fresh Bruce Willis movies. He was in Pulp Fiction and he was in Hudson Hawk. We've gone everywhere with this man. So uh, appropriately, he's he's back in a movie that takes him everywhere across the span of time, the way that he goes across the span of the tomato meter. He um, has an affinity for that, it seems. If not traveling to space, then time itself, because obviously Looper would come, what, about 20 years after this? And I thought you were referencing Armageddon. <laughs> well, it, I, he likes traveling to space also there and changing the course of history. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, Julio, this is part of the Continuing Contrarians patron takeover Love our patrons oh so dearly as they continue to feed us just random smorgasbord. This is like a Vegas buffet has more consistency than some of the things that you and I are doing for the for our wonderful patrons. So who requested this? Who demanded this? Who put this on our desk and said, nut up, now's the time. 12 monkeys, la jete, hop on it. <laughs> Well, this comes courtesy of uh, Stu Willis, who is the the other half of Draft Zero. Uh, he is the man. Is he the the Alex to Chaz's Julio, or is he the Julio to Chaz's Alex? Uh, I, I don't know. Because see, I've I've hung out with both of them, but you only know Chaz, so I, oh, I, I can't trust your judgment there. I, I know both of them via the internet, and I've made some good friends via the internet, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel bad whoever has to be compared to me, so. Uh. <laughs> well, whatever the case, um, Stu, Stu thinks very highly of us, uh, I think, and that's why he decided to, his his initial suggestion was just la jete, and he just said, why don't you do la jete, because he wanted to, he wanted us to do something that was a little more experimental, mm-hmm. and, and I was like... I have never seen La Jete, but I can tell you that that's, that's going to be a tough episode unless we pair it with something a little more mainstream, which thankfully is is right there for the taking because, mm-hmm. you know, 12 Monkeys was inspired by La Jete. So, and he, he really liked the idea. He has sent us a clip to be played during Real Talk. So if you want to know how Stu feels about La Jete and 12 Monkeys, hang on because <laughs> we'll be sharing his, his feelings in the second half of the show. Now, we're doing both fresh movies. Obviously, La Jete barely qualifies as a movie. Like we were saying, the pictures don't move. Isn't that why they call it a movie? Because they move? (laughs) Motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. There's no motion. No motion, therefore no emotion. In the the runtime, it's like 
It's just barely longer than an Instagram short. So <laughs> do we even want to waste time uh, analyzing it? Whatever there is to analyze. I think that more than likely what we're going to do is just kind of reference it whenever we see echoes of La Jetée in into the, the Terry Gilliam side of it, the Terry Gilliam version. But Alex, it is 93%. So I do have some uh, La Jetée quotes that maybe can uh, help us set the tone here. I'm all ears to <laughs> learn how... Uh, <laughs> Much of an uncultured swine I am by the reviews that are listed here. Uh, you know, pick up your uh, your cup of tea, light your cigar, put your monocle on. Uh, <laughs> Phil Hall from Film Threat says, one of the greatest films ever made. Cole Smithy from colesmithy.com says, lovely. John Nickham from Lawrence Journal World says, the most haunting sci-fi film ever made. And Luke White Thompson from New Times says, A perfect little short, all shot and still images, more haunting than its big budget remake, 12 Monkeys. Uh, there is one rotten quote that we're going to save for the real talk portion of this episode. But a lot of love, a lot of uh, a lot of overrating of uh, La Jetée, Alex. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess when you watch it, having watched 12 Monkeys, it doesn't even have whatever novelty it had back in the 60s <laughs> you know the idea of like oh this guy goes back in time and sees himself die like that's like oh well been there done that with bruce willis and brad pitt so why would you even watch this why what's the big deal um to see french kristen dunst <laughs> did you see that that resemblance i was too busy trying to keep up the captions to uh, really fantasy cast anybody in this because yeah if we're if we're going in we're going hashtag all in no dubbing here we tried it with uh or i tried it with writers of justice and it was just i felt like i was doing a disservice to our show so yes uh here's my major thought about la jetée which, which this was in the 60s so you know like movies were already what we know now as movies and then this this person what's his name chris marks is that is that the director's name like he mm-hmm he took this, he took the medium of cinema and walked it backwards. The magic of movies is that you take still images and you run them so fast that it looks like there's motion. And instead, what he did was he took the still images and he just let them be still. <laughs> That's not... He broke the machine. He broke the illusion. <laughs> what's What's the point? And then I got to the very end of it and I'm like, you know what? There is that movie with Eric Bana where... Uh, he he kind of like pops in and out of this woman's I don't remember who the actress is, but he pops in and out of her life, traveling through time. Alex, have you heard of the Time Traveler's Wife? I screened that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Livingston's in that burger, and it's uh <laughs> is it not Rachel McAdams? It might be. It might be. I just remember Eric Bana kind of like dissolving in, in the trailer. You would see him dissolve and it's like, oh, he's going. And I mean that movie actually fleshed things out. As opposed to La Jetée, which can't wait to get to the end credits. I know that that here we we generally champion short movies, but that this that's too much. Uh, but then, of course, and and here's where Tom Monkeys comes on. So leave it to Hollywood to take a short story and then just basically do the the, the Richard Kelly spin on it, where they're like, okay, now we're just gonna overblow it with detail and, and, and backstory. And so they took something that was too short and they made it too long. And and now 12 Monkeys stands at like two hours and 10 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, we can't win, Alex. Are we being too picky or is it just that that we are the only people that have their eyes wide open? 
I think we're just learned scholars, Julio. I think you know we've been <laughs> at this game for a long time, and I think we know what has merit and value and what doesn't. We champion the Euro trips of the world and the <laughs> take me home tonight's. And so when something like Twelve Monkeys, an adaptation of just a fucking weird college project from the early '60s, comes along, I mean, it's up to us to do do the podcasting time travel equivalent of setting the record straight. Yes, we're going to go back in time to, uh, who do we need to warn about this? Universal? Is that like, do you just burst into the Universal offices? Uh, one person you could go back in time and warn is Duncan Jones. Like, hey, they're going to make your same movie 20 years before you do. <laughs> Here, watch this. <laughs> it's, uh, fuck it. You know, the woman who did Hunger Games claimed she had never heard of Battle Royale, that type of thing. <laughs> he sit Duncan Jones down and uh, source code was 2011. So, like, you know, he's doing the script in 2009 and his nephew or someone's like got the TV on. He walks past. What is this? Oh, it's this old movie, 12 Monkeys. And he sits down and just fuck and flips the table over. <laughs> and then he has to make that really awkward call to Jay Gyllenhaal. It's like, hey, man. <laughs> All right, we got to talk, man. <laughs> oh, who's uh, Michelle Monaghan? That's the woman, right? Yeah. That's the that's the phone call. He's like, you know, who who's in the room with him? His agent or somebody? <laughs> he, he, the phone's ringing. He cups the, the receiver. He's like, I fucking promised her an Oscar from this. <laughs> this was gonna be her comeback. <laughs> and then like Vera Farmiga is who he calls, and he's he's like, Hey, I got some news. She's like, You finally watched Twelve Monkeys, didn't you? <laughs> This is the story of a man marked by an image of his childhood. The violent scene which upset him and whose meaning he was to grasp only years later happened on the main pier at Orly, Paris airport, sometime before the outbreak of World War III. Well, Alex, I, I also have quotes for 12 Monkeys, also a fresh movie, also a, a movie that took critics by storm. Mm-hmm. So before we fully get into the plot of 12 Monkeys, what passes the plot there, let's let's go with some more fresh quotes. Uh, we're going to start with Matthew Petrovic from Matt's Movie Reviews, who says, A dark and gritty sci-fi thriller, 12 Monkeys stands apart from other sci-fi films due to its unique and twisted concept on the future of mankind. Alex, so unique and twisted, it is about a virus threatening the world and a bunch of people not taking it seriously. How about that? Who would have thought? Uh, next, Wesley Lavelle from CinemaSide says, Terry Gilliam has seldom been more inventive or more compelling. Um, that's easy to say because Terry Gilliam is not that good of a filmmaker. So the, the bar is pretty low. Uh, there's what? Time Bandits? Brazil? That's just... Uh, there, there's that movie, that Don Quixote movie that I don't think he ever finished. Uh, Would Fear and Loathing be his most famous movie, you think? If you're asking... Uh, film twitter i think that yeah they'll be like oh yeah if you're asking uh older people uh, they're gonna go with time bandits you know because they'll tell you oh yeah you know he was still like leaving monty python and uh i'm sure like that the most pretentious of pretentiousness uh, uh on the, as far as film layers uh, they would go with brazil yeah that yeah that absolutely makes sense 
I'm going to move on to Paul Chambers from Movie Chambers, who says, Not only does it bear the mark of the erratic filmmaking genius Terry Gilliam, it gives fans of the sci-fi genre something to love. An intelligent film on time travel that begs a second viewing. Alex, for one reason or another, I've seen this movie at least four times, and uh, I can't tell you that it gets any clearer <laughs> with a second viewing or a third viewing. I think it gets more confusing. It is like Southland Tales. Yes. <laughs> Yes, except that there's no uh, there's no musical number for the intermission. No, uh, I yeah probably three times I've seen this. Can you tell what's going on at the end? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, good. We'll, we'll be on the on the same level when we're discussing the ending, and we're gonna close with something that uh, might incense you, Alex. Dennis Schwartz from Dennis Schwartz Movie Reviews says an antithesis of how the Terminator handled time travel. Dennis Schwartz invoked the Terminator. What an asshole. <laughs> Why? Why would you do that, Dennis? Why yeah, there's really comparisons? There's no need to. You're doing fine just talking about this movie. Time travel ain't real. So, <laughs> I mean, that we know of. So it's not like you have any actual thesis or scientific evidence to put it up against. 12 Monkeys got it right, and Terminator got it wrong. That's how time travel really worked. <laughs> That's like the arguments that I've found myself in arguing, like the logistics of things that happen in Star Wars and how realistic they are. So <laughs> I understand it. I also have never put pen to or uh, text to keyboard, my fingers to the keyboard, and published it for the whole world to see where I say something that nerdy that <laughs> is begging for me to get a wedgie or wet willy or some shit. So uh, about that. Uh Search engine optimization. Uh, optimization, yeah. Yeah, you're like, just drop the Terminator there. <laughs> It'll drive people to your review. Um, those are the quotes, Alex. Let's let's see if we can make sense of uh, 12 Monkeys in, in just the, the convoluted time travel that Bruce Willis finds himself in. Let's go to Contrarian's Corner. We appreciate your volunteering. You're a very good observer, Cole. Thank you. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. We want tough-minded people. Strong, mentally. Can we make more sense of it than it was a Christmas release? It was released <laughs> around the holidays? Because when I think Christmas, boy, I think Philadelphia and I think 12 Monkeys. <laughs> Uh, well, I do kind of think Philadelphia because of Rocky, but um, all right. 25 years before shit actually went down, 24. A deadly virus is released in 1996, and it wipes out almost all of humanity, 5 billion people, which is no small potatoes, uh, forcing survivors to live underground. A group known as the Army of the 12 Monkeys is believed to have released the virus. Uh, in 2035, James Cole, this is Bruce Willis, our main character, is a prisoner living in an underground compound beneath Philadelphia. Cole is selected to be sent back in time to find the original virus to help scientists develop a cure in exchange for a reduced sentence. Meanwhile, Cole is troubled by dreams involving a foot chase and a shooting at an airport. This is basically the extent of the tie-in. Uh, to La Jete. Um, I was say, he, he's haunted by dreams of La Jete. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is like 
the story by credit for 12 monkeys because it's like this guy is haunted by these visions at the airport uh the world goes to shit and he's trying to save it via time travel and things go awry uh that is basically all that la jete gives you and then it's just kind of over and it's black and white and nothing moves and you're just kind of like <laughs> why <laughs> I've never in my life seen a piece of cinema that was more worthy of the Criterion C on it from a, st- a standpoint of pure pretentiousness. So, Bruce Willis, we see his ass twice, I think, here in the opening go. Yeah, shit's really crazy in the future. And so we got to travel back in time. I mean, that's. Are there any time travel movies that don't involve, uh, with the exception of The Time Traveler's Wife, that don't involve. <laughs> traveling back in time to prevent something bad happening in the future i thought you were saying traveling back in the nude because i was gonna say yeah you know kyle reese arnold i guess marty mcfly he travels back in time by accident the first time yeah but here what's interesting is it's not like he didn't sign up for it and the terminator you know kyle reese volunteers the terminator is a machine so he's sent back in time and in this case Bruce is just like, no, no, don't send me back in time. I don't want to go back to the 90s. I'm not a volunteer. (laughs) He gets overshot the first time and goes back to 1990 and is apprehended by the law enforcement. And he's treated by, I know she's not, but it feels like she's the only female in this movie. Uh, (laughs) Madeline Stowe, who plays Dr. Catherine, is it Rayleigh or Riley? Riley. Riley, okay. And they start a relationship that if you can believe it will this chemistry the, the the foundation of time and space itself it's a hell of a meet cute because when she she first sees bruce he is uh all beaten up and drugged and he's drooling through the entire scene did that make you uncomfortable alex we go from seeing uh, bruce willis's ass twice in five minutes to seeing him drool up a waterfall in the scene it's unsettling yeah <laughs> well this movie too to make everything a bit more like kind of gross and on edge is uh it has the the tilt do you remember the tilt we called out in battlefield earth yes uh and that's plain as day here everything's just kind of tilted on its side like basically like uh terry gillen's behind the camera and kind of started dozing off at one point and forgot to reframe the camera for the rest of the filming so that makes it gives it like this weird voyage quality and then yeah bruce willis is just bleeding and drooling everywhere and it's like what the fuck man just tell me how the time travel works let's have some fun i don't need to see this yeah it, it, it takes him a while because they conveniently you know they have to keep him drugged I think it's like the combination that when, when he's apprehended by authorities, they drug him and then also time travel fucks with his head. So he's he's not in his right mind most of the time. And it really made me wonder why they picked him to begin with. You know, they tell him like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, you have a good memory. But really, didn't you get the feeling that anybody else would have been a better, like that there were better candidates out there <laughs> that would have actually, because the first thing he does when he arrives in the 90s is get in, in, in a fight, and that's where he ends up arrested. It's like, can't you send somebody that's a little smarter? Can't you send Kyle Reese? Jose? Jose? Uh, isn't, yeah, John Seda in this movie. Like, it, it gives the impression, based on the conditions, that there would be people that volunteer for this. Of like, let me do this so I can get out of here. You know what I mean? Can uh, but I instead- please go to the coolest decade? Take me to the 90s. Oh, I hope you don't overshoot me and take me back to 95 and I get to see Empire Records in the movie theater. 
But back to 1990, he's placed in a mental institution. We meet, as I mentioned, Madeline Stowe and Brad, man. It's fucking Brad Pitt. Unleashed. It, if you can believe it, he's really hot. You know, he looks good and takes his ass out pretty quick into the movie. And okay, wait, wait a second, Alex. I, I mean, I don't disagree that Brad Pitt is, along general lines, an attractive man. But in the, in the curve of of Brad Pitt hotness, I don't know that Jeffrey Gaines is is near the top. Dude, that's like the bullshit of this movie. It's like he's <laughs> Brad's still hot as fuck, but god damn mid 90s brad where he was just raw dogging everything on earth man <laughs> and they have to do these things to make him look slightly unattractive so you know his hair's fucked up and he's got the wonky eye uh and the way he acts is kind of weird and quirky but not to the point of being cute so it, it's kind of fun to watch the idea of how do we make this super attractive person not attractive <laughs> let's tell him to act like jim carrey and let's see where that takes us. <laughs> yes, it, it was the same year as Batman Forever, so they're like, watch this five times. <laughs> My question for you, Julio, is that you and I are obviously both big fans of Brad Pitt, as we've talked about several times before on the podcast here. Moneyball comes to mind. Uh, but watching him, you know, he's not an amateur here, but isn't there something weird about going back and knowing actors that we knew became stalwarts of their generation trying so hard yep. and just you know going for it all capitalized this is uh like we both love brad pitt in uh once upon a time in hollywood right yes and it is a fantastic performance and he is putting maybe a quarter of the effort that he's it's putting here the into exact opposite of this yeah yeah he's just sitting back and letting the movie you know just bow to him and and here he's just like hey i'm here i'm still here <laughs> keeps calling your attention it's uh, i mean it's good because we're watching it from the future <laughs> and so we know that this story has a happy ending he eventually grows up he matures into the the brad pitt that we respect now but back then i mean that he was in shaky ground that that performance could have gone either way especially because he got an oscar nomination for it so uh -huh. in a way the industry was encouraging, rewarding him being so going so big. That Oscar nomination he lost out to his uh, his father in this movie, Christopher Plummer. For <laughs> oh, the usual I get suspects. It. I get it. <laughs> God damn you! I I can't believe that that you snuck that one past me. <laughs> if you're if this is your first time listening, that that's a just think about it. You'll be all right. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. I, I got a little carried away uh, explaining the inner workings of the institution to Jim. Hmm? So, Alex, the, the depiction of a mental institution in this movie, uh, is, it, <laughs> is it that I am uh, kind of uh, just used to more respectable mental institutions, you know, after watching all the Halloweens and just seeing how, uh, <laughs> how, they, how they treat Michael Myers when, whenever they capture him? Because like, uh, this felt... Like it was uh, walking the line towards being offensive, just the way that everybody in this in this hospital is just, you know, wackadoodle. They're just acting like there's there's cartoon sounds in the back. I know that there's it's supposed to be the yeah, television the obsession but. with like cartoons being on and like board games being available in the mental institution. It's I think of every time I think of like a mental institution in a movie. There's a scene in Freddy versus Jason where one of the 
characters is meticulously breaking down how they're not insane and how they can stop Freddy Krueger from killing them in their dreams. And one of the patients comes up with a checkerboard and he's just like, I don't do checkers, man. And then goes back to breaking down how they can catch Freddy in a dream. (laughs) Anyone who's seen that movie knows what I'm talking about. And it's one of those moments that can only be created in a bad uh, slasher movie. (laughs) Eight, nine years before that, we have this situation here. And uh, like with most things, you can tie it to the 2009 A-Team. And do you remember the scene in that where Shirato Copley is in the mental institution and it's like a parody of a mental institution for comedic effect and it's basically what it is in 12 Monkeys? Yep. It's just people like yelling and him like galvanizing the troops and riling everybody up and chanting and movies, board games, all this shit. So yeah, yeah it... Um, it definitely comes from a time where the idea of a psych ward or um, a mental health facility was a punchline. <laughs> yeah. You find an abandoned school and you throw a bunch of morons in there and you feed them full of drugs and hilarity ensues. Yeah. It's 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 all wacky shenanigans as Brad Pitt jumps from bed to bed, shows his ass, uh, pretends that he's running an auction. It's bizarre <laughs> and it's also kind of jarring because it's not what the movie is moving forward you know it's like this is there's a solid i don't know 20 minutes that we spend in the mental institution and you think okay so it's gonna be like uh like the sci-fi version of one uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest but but no i mean it's just it's just a section of the movie which maybe if they'd had more time to develop the mental institution and you actually saw that oh no it looked cartoony at first but then you start digging deeper and there's there's a lot more going on uh but no i I think terry gilliam didn't have patience for any of that something this movie doesn't have the patience for is plausible strategizing what i mean is this group of scientists in the future that have figured out time travel (laughs) send bruce willis back with no plan of what to do they're like go back and just get like a bug and (laughs) call this number and see what happens what kind of plan is that terminator go back kill this motherfucker or even that's uh two the first one go back kill this woman done Kyle Reese, go back, stop this dude from killing this woman. That it is. This is, hey, five million people are going to die. Just go back and figure it out, man. You, you know, See what you can find out. Call it on the fly. We're <laughs> yeah. going to call it in the ring once you get there. You know, Text us, let us know you're there, and we'll figure it out. Was Google a thing in the 90s? Could they have like at least, I'm like, hey, can you go back and Google how this happens? <laughs> Ask Jeeves. Get on Net- so, Netscape and <laughs> go from there. So he tries to plead his case to the board there. You know, Loomis and all the doctors are there. And he says, (laughs) you know, this is what's going on. I just need to make a phone call. Uh, Riley believes him and allows him to make a phone call, but it doesn't go to the right place because he says it's the wrong point in time. They sent me back too far. Uh, Brad helps him forge an escape after they drug up Bruce Willis to the point where he can't even see straight. (laughs) Terrible timing. Yeah, it's like uh, there's some mission in GTA where you have to drive and the character is shit faced and it's, you know, it's, you know, probably a bad influence, but that's kind of what it reminded me of. Cause the, your line of vision and the game's all fucked up. And, uh, this is where Gilliam goes up to 11 with the tilts. Oh yes. Tilt heavy. I do want to call out that Brad is talking. They're doing, showing something about the, the chemical trials being done on animals, monkeys specifically. And he says monkey and has a key for, <laughs> Bruce to 
He, he says, your emancipation. That's what he says. I have that written down here. More of the reoccurring vision. But then, yeah, he tries to get out and he's caught and then put in another room and literally chained to the bed, you know, full restraints. And they come back and he's gone because the scientists sucked him back to 2035 or wherever they are. Before before they come back, though, um, the the board of white doctors give Madeline Stowe a dressing down for not having had Bruce Willis chained <laughs> the entire time. Yes, you. Woman. one The only woman here in this hospital. <laughs> yeah, the only woman in this film, 140 pounds. You, you should be the one that straps him down and you know, handles this <laughs> with great aplomb. Uh, he goes back. This is where we're introduced to like this uh, really ominous voice who calls Bruce Bob. Do we ever fully figure out who this is, Julio? Come on, Alex. <laughs> You've seen the movie three times. I've seen it just as many times as possible. You know that that's one of the big unanswered questions. There's. It's not even that it's an unanswered question. It's a question that has uh, contradicting answers depending on when you are in the movie. So. Uh, no, let's let's think. What do you think? There's several options. It's it's a voice in his head. It's a, a fellow uh, volunteer that's kind of communicating with him, uh, or or it's a, a spy from the scientists that's kind of like messing with his head. What do you think is happening here? All three? <laughs> is it God? Uh, it's God. <laughs> I took this to be the Metal Gear sequences that are really transitional cinematics of the game is saving and you're not really supposed to be paying attention to what's going on here just kind of like watching in the background seeing what snake's doing and then the game starts back up because every time or like in crash bandicoot when the big heads talk to crash and she's kind of what just no let me go back to smashing crates i don't i don't give a shit about this but then when they introduce the guy later in the movie the the homeless man who we think is you know the almighty voice that we keep hearing over and over again I don't know. I have bigger issues that go unanswered than this, so I didn't find myself with much time to really get too pissed about it. I'm going to I'm going to land on a new interpretation. It's Terry Gilliam just speaking to Bruce Willis and just getting him all riled up for the next scene. <laughs> that's yeah, that's uh Scorsese or Tarantino or any <laughs> anyone that, you know, pulls him aside. Who's Abdelatif Kashishi, you know, slap him like <laughs> All right, now listen, this Bob. <laughs> my name <Yeah>. is Bruce. <laughs> okay, Bob. <laughs> yeah, uh, my name is. Br- Your name's whatever the fuck I tell you it is. <laughs> my name's not Bob. Not a prop, Bob. All right, let's take round two. Send him back in time, and he is sent back. Way further. Was it 1917, they say? He's on the battlefield during World War One. He's shot in the leg. He looks like Gigi Allen here because he's naked and covered in mud. <laughs> and he's just kind of crawling around on the ground. The picture that is obviously the big picture, the reveal uh, at the beginning of the third act, where he's like reaching out. I mm-hmm. laughed so hard because he looks like Gigi Allen on the cover of Hated. I was just like, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm sad now that we're never going to get the dramatic biopic of uh, Gigi Allen where Bruce Willis... Imagine that, man. Bruce Willis singing Bite It, You Scum, naked, bleeding. Uh, John Cena gets uh, gets another cameo here, or another another appearance. Uh, I like that, you know, they're surrounded by John, French troops. Oh, John Cena. I was like, John's the franchise? <laughs> Hustle, loyalty, respect is in this? 
<laughs> Sorry, John Cena. Uh, yeah, he shows up. Uh, he's also been thrown back into the the to the 1917s uh, and he's uh, he's injured and so he's screaming in English Bruce Willis is screaming in English everybody else is screaming in French but my favorite part is that when they see each other uh, Bruce Willis goes Jose <laughs> it just it just cracked me up I was like that's a Hispanic name <laughs> you already had two languages going on in this very confusing turn of events uh, it's more importantly Julio did you notice Bruce Willis's penis in this scene uh i thought i saw it and i but i was running behind on time so i didn't really want to go fall, fall down the rabbit hole of like pausing the and, star trek beyond idris elba enhance <laughs> enhance uh yeah i remember i think we talk about bruce's cock in our pulp fiction discussions we've had before we're like uh someone said like at one point there was a shot you can see his penis in the movie i remember that was like a big thing people said that's that's what makes uh madeline so scream later in the movie when she's looking at the picture yes yes she (laughs) sees his penis in the picture she's like oh god um so then flash forward to 1996 and rally madeline stowe is giving a lecture on the cassandra complex which relates to a person whose valid warnings or concerns are disbelieved by others don't cry wolf man (laughs) <laughs> it literally says that Bruce Willis later on you and your kind Julio and again I'm not referring to Peruvians but the <laughs> MCU fans would say that Martin Scorsese years ago had the Cassandra complex <laughs> or wait like, no I'm sorry you wouldn't say that you didn't believe him so it's been proven that he had the Cassandra complex I, I misused that in the sentence there what else is an example of someone who like warned us about shit Dr. Fauci? <laughs> any yes. Any Republican in like 2015 that was like this guy can't win. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, she talks about in detail this incident where Jose was captured by the French soldiers in World War 1 and said he warned of uh, you know, extinction for the human race that would be to come and i love that she she makes a point of saying like mysteriously he had forgotten french he had forgotten how to speak french but he spoke yes she (laughs) sucks about it like it's just part of the story she's like he forgot french but was suddenly able to speak fluent english that's not how that shit works and he warned of the extinction or like the human race being wiped out in the year and then she pauses you guessed it 1996 she gives it the norm mcdonald delivery there uh, this is where David Morse is introduced as he's what appears to be like a fanboy of listening to her lecture. He gets a book signed by her, but uh, as we learn, he's a bad dude. He's got bad intentions, and he's kind of there to say, don't you think that something could wipe out, that science could create something that could wipe out the human race? And You don't see it at first, but he's obviously a creepy dude. Oh, you, you see it at first, Alex. <laughs> You called out the ponytail, and I think that that's the first red flag. And then, well, just... I'm sorry. You see that he's weird, but you don't see that he has the capability to destroy humankind or the desire to. <laughs> you just know that he's fucking weird. Because yeah, that ponytail he has, man, comes with every season of Family Guy on DVD. Like it's a <laughs> situation where you just know something's wrong with that guy. I wonder how David Morse felt about the. That's a wig, right? That's not his hair. <laughs> I don't know. I'd hope he just went all in on it, but no telling. Or the really uncomfortable thing when the, you know, cut, that's a wrap. Good work, everybody. 
costuming and props comes to take the wig off him and he goes, leave it. And you see the- <laughs> looks at himself in the mirror with it and then walks off wearing it. When Riley begins to leave, she's not assaulted, but grabbed by a mysterious man outside as she's getting into her car. He says he has a gun. They get in the car, says drive. Where are we going? Philadelphia. It's revealed that it's James back trying to finish what he started. She obviously remembers him immediately. <laughs> and they begin their journey, and he explains that, you know, it has something to do with the 12 monkeys. He's just going on and on, and she's trying to piece it together, but she still thinks he's an absolute loon, and she's, you know, being, uh, she has self preservation at the front of her mind. And so she knows it's a hostage situation. She's trying to do what he wants her to do, but uh, keeping sharp about it. It, you can tell from the way he looks, he does not smell good, hasn't eaten in a while, yells to turn up the radio, which, man, if you're not driving, you don't get to say shit about what's on the radio. <laughs> is this is this a uh, Willis' Oscar clip, Alex, when he turns into a child as he listens? Uh, is it What a Wonderful World? The first song? Yeah, that he- puts his yeah. head out the window like a dog. Yeah, probably would be. Who does the Joker before the Joker? Oh, I didn't even think about that. You're right. The real Joker. Well, a real Joker. not <laughs> A not real Joker. <laughs> Does have, uh, during this very elongated sequence where we're also reporting on the boy that fell down the well uh, from that time period, and um, they're starting to hear on television and the radio about her going missing because it was reported to the police, and so they know it's, it's a bad situation. In all this, though, Bruce does have a pretty good moment of levity where he turns up the radio and he's like... I didn't know what that was. I wanted to know if I already got arrested. And he says something like that. And she looks at him like, what the fuck? He's like, it's a joke. (laughs) So they get to Philadelphia. They're downtown. He sees the emblem, the logo, the PDF of the 12 monkeys, (laughs) like their, you know, their bat signal and jumps out of the car and runs. He's like, here it is. Madeline Stowe does not take off. (laughs) Yes. This is where the movie ends. He's out of the car and she does not put her foot to the floor. She just kind of looks longingly and is like, oh, I got to help this man. We've had some times. Which immediately pays off because she's immediately attacked and assaulted by two drug addicts or just rough characters at the least. Yeah. Bruce Willis kills them and then she freaks out that they're dead. Wouldn't you be uh, a little more just grateful (laughs) that these people that were going to hurt you really bad, you and your friend uh, are now not going to hurt anybody ever again? She says you killed them. To which Bruce responds, all I see are dead people. And somewhere, <laughs> a slightly younger M. Night Shyamalan went and pointed at the screen. Not unlike Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It all came together. That was the one thing he was missing. He was like, I need the trailer line for this, this script I'm writing. Look, have any of you heard of the army of the 12 monkeys? They... They paint this, they stencil this on the sides of buildings everywhere. Have you seen this? Mr. Cole, have you seen this? They go outside and they see a corner store that doesn't look terribly unlike the bar that Tommy Gunn and Rocky have their street fight in. Outside of, excuse me, in Rocky Five, We learn of Goins and the Plumber, I have in my notes here, that Chris, the Plums, Christopher Plummer, is a successful politician and that Brad Pitt is his son. Jeffrey is his name, right? Jeff Goins. Yeah, Jeffrey Goins. Is he a politician or is he a is he big pharma? 
I think Plummer is Big Pharma, right? Because that's why he has yes, to go. Yes, yes, I'm sorry, because the... he has that. I, I'm thinking, I'm conflating. He has the big dinner with all the politicians there mm-hmm. to, like, you know, sell them on what's going on. So, yeah, good call. The intel we learn is that Jeff Brad Pitt is acting as though he's come to his sense and is helping his dad out because he's planning some big act. So, I, I think this is the point where we need to address, Alex, that this. As amusing as it can be to watch Brad Pitt kind of like overact every time he shows up in the movie, and he, you know, he's like the third most important character, probably. Uh, it's kind of a waste of time, right? Like once you've watched the movie once, you know this. You may not know <laughs> how to untangle the logistics of time travel, but if we know something for sure once the movie's over, is that Brad Pitt didn't amount to anything. Like we spent all this time on Brad Pitt, and it's all a red herring, and. Once you've seen the movie once, especially, like, this feels like a big fuck you to the audience. Because you, you're just wasting my time, you know? Like, in this movie, like I mentioned earlier, it's like over two hours. So really, would you, wouldn't you agree that it would have been much nicer if they had limited the, the amount of time that they gave to the Brad Pitt character? Because in the end, he doesn't count? Yeah, it just seems like an excuse to get this young, hot actor in this kind of <laughs> wacky role and see what happens. Just have him play Cole. Then I would 100% buy that Madeline Stowe is not leaving that car. Oh, absolutely. She she would just look into his eyes and think of the life they could have together, and I understand that. I mean, Bruce, again, is in rough shape here. But she you know, warms up to him. She He's had this bullet in his leg for 80 years, and she's like, we need to get this out of here. <laughs> so they pull over. Very Hitchcockian-style scene where the car pulls over, and we get these like really extreme close-ups of uh, a, a trading perspective back and forth, and... Um, they go into the woods. She extracts the bullet from his leg. Immediately is like, uh, "This ain't <laughs> from a street gun." Where, where are you? Were you in a duel? Did Aaron Burr shoot you? <laughs> we then go to the correspondence dinner. Is this, is this where uh, where Bruce Willis just says, "You wouldn't believe me"? Like after he already told her about the time travel <laughs> and the virus. <laughs> Yes, it, that's so good. She's like, where did this come from? He's why do you care? You wouldn't even <laughs> believe me. There is a weird tease of he grabs her and we're not sure what happens. That's kind of like the cliffhanger. That would, I would assume that's where like the syndicated TV broadcast of it went to commercial. Uh, but we go to a dinner of politicians, doctors, and I guess people that the Plums is trying to sway his way of you know, finance, the future, et cetera, et cetera. Help me finance not, the apocalypse. I was not aware, though, that this is Southern Christopher Plummer. He's basically <laughs> like a plantation owner, like, well, I do declare. <laughs> I'm here today to talk about a vow, potential <laughs> outbreak and virus we have on our hands. Uh, uh, we see that Brad Pitt has inherited the the ponytail from David Morse. Do you think they were they were sharing, or did Pitt get his own? I was curious if that was actually his hair. I don't know how long they spent shooting this movie. That would have to be like at least six or seven months difference. Because I remember around this time he had long hair. I don't remember like off the top of my head, but I know from going back and revisiting television, magazines, and such. But yeah, he probably just had a wig. Is it as much of a red flag on Brad as it is on David Morse? No. Brad Pitt can rock a ponytail. <laughs> David Morse cannot. There's that famous like one interview segment where Ric Flair put his hair in a ponytail and everyone told him never do that again. <laughs> and <laughs> it uh it's just not meant to be for some people. 
Brad, I, I don't know how Brad could look bad, but he's in evil genius mode here where he sees after Cole attempts to break in, Cole says, I know Jeff. Let me talk to him. Jeff comes in and says, never seen him before in his life. He says, I'm here to talk about the 12 monkeys. And then he makes up a name for him and an alibi. And he says, come with me. But he's a real sociopath here. He's like, I, yeah, come with me. And quickly in conversation convinces him, no, this is your fault. You're the one who said you wanted to annihilate the human race. And then he starts like setting him over the edge and it turns into this big production. And when he's kind of, you know, got him over the rail, Brad Pitt makes the face at him and gives him the finger like he knows what's <laughs> going on. But no one's gonna, who, who's going to believe you. There's just a, a lot happening in this sequence. And it all adds up to nothing because... Like I said, there's the threat of Brad Pitt. Like it's like here, the scene is designed to make you think, oh yeah, he is going to steal his father's virus and release it in the world. And that's why the world looks the way it looks in the Bruce Willis future. But when you know that that's not the case, that all he's doing is he's planning to release wild animals into the streets. This scene doesn't, you know, it's the kind of thing that could have been cleared up with like a couple of sentences you know if they'd had an honest conversation <laughs> bruce willis tells him hey i know about the virus i know that you're planning to wipe the earth and then brad pitt says like no that was your idea not mine i'm just gonna release animals and then bruce willis is like really okay my bad <laughs> i'm gonna go pursue other leads uh, but no instead they have to make it all ambiguous so that the movie can last another 45 minutes yes uh and Speaking of ambiguity or like cliffhangers that exist for absolutely no reason, during this fracas, the news broadcast says the body of who could potentially be <laughs> Dr. Riley, Riley, Catherine Riley was found in the woods. And it's like, what the fuck? He killed her? And he immediately gets back. And no, he just put her in the trunk of his car. So she kicks him. Someone's dead out there. Just not Dr. <laughs> Riley. Riley. We're just not going to worry about them. Once again, now. When the walls are closing in, Bruce is plucked by the scientist and goes back to his time. And uh, Catherine's left there just wondering, like, what the hell just happened? And then I wonder what the hell just happened. And we get a smash cut to Christopher Maloney. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on, man? God, my, my nose just like, whoa, 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 Maloney? <laughs> I did not remember he was in this movie. I just have Gene in all caps because that's his character's name in What Hot American Summer. <laughs> oh, he's cleaned up in this one. He's uh, clean shaven, oh, yeah. dressed nicely. Very handsome. He has no bones about wanting to canoodle with uh, <laughs> Dr. Riley. He even says, you know, come on down. We'll go maybe get some lunch. I'll help you tighten up your story. <laughs> She's going mad, though. She won his Stockholm Syndrome style, making excuses for her captor, but back at home when he calls and he's like yeah we got a problem that bullet uh is an antique from before the 1920s and she just does the this can't be and hangs up the phone and no 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 and <laughs> is reading in books and then goes to her wall of littered with all of her different research and work does not make her look like a sane person at all the way her apartment's <laughs> rearranged and then she takes that picture of the soldier and she, there's Gigi Willis uh, and she no it can't be and I, all that could have happened here is she fainted like that's kind of what I wanted to see <laughs> uh, I I felt like watching the movie today it, the the more interesting way into it is if you watch it assuming that Bruce Willis really is delusional 
and that he's just made up, you know, what he at some point comes to believe in the movie that, that he's mentally divergent and that he, he has uh, created this reality to escape the pain of our reality and so on. And so when you see it like that, you see what this, the story is happening. It's like, oh man, this is really compelling because you have this doctor that starts treating him as a patient and then somehow he transfers his madness onto her. And that's really cool, except that, well, it's not about that because the movie really is about the science fiction side of it. So that's a bummer because especially this moment, you know, uh, where she she turns and she's got she's going from being the very rational character that was trying to have an explanation for everything. Uh, now she she's just falling into that that delusion herself. Like you said, it was all in my mind. <laughs> you disappeared. Okay, one minute you were there, the next minute you were gone. Did you run through the woods or? After another load screen and uh, checkpoint where it <laughs> saves the game with the scientists, <laughs> he's like, send me back. I'll, I'll get this taken care of and goes back. But now he's changed his story to like, I am crazy. I just want to live in the present. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want to be with you. It's, you know, we say this, Julio. The toothpaste cannot be put back in the tube, and it's a bit late in the game for him to change his story. Yep. Incredibly frustrating, because you just feel like, you know, you just took us back to, I don't know, an hour ago in the movie. I'm like, man, we finally got uh, Madeline Stowe on board, and now we have to get Bruce Willis back on board? It's like, when does it end? Uh, I, I get it. Bruce Willis, you know, wants to show, like, the vulnerable side and all that stuff. I, I was just ready for him to kick ass. You know, we're building up to this confrontation between him and Brad Pitt, you know, so we think. And uh, and now it's like every time he comes back to the present or he comes back to the past, 90, to 1990s, uh, he he seems more helpless and more clueless. And like he's, he's more, you know, gone mentally. Like this this last time where he comes back, he, he really is like a child. It takes us to this scenario in which... Uh, Catherine and Jim check into a hotel that I guess is used predominantly for prostitution and the pimp shows up and because this movie hasn't been male dominant enough we have to have Madeline Stowe get punched in the face by a pimp and Bruce defends her and before he can kill him though she's like no but take his cash <laughs> and Bruce takes him into the bathroom shuts the door she thinks it's to kill him comes in he had cut his teeth out it looks like his back molars it's fucking disgusting because he says that's how they identify him and he doesn't want them to find him I, I don't know. I mean, I know Bruce is tougher than me, but uh, he takes his teeth out in like, I don't know, 30 seconds. Like that, mm-hmm. It will require a lot of work for me to do it. And then for not to for me not to pass out after I've done it. Yeah, <laughs> just, if I ever have to do that, man, it's just straight up cast away. I'm going to find the, the, the most unsanitary, uh, <laughs> just backwoods way to do it and then immediately pass out after impact. Bruce Willis, just too much of a man here. Yeah, it's a, I think the implication is that he used the the shower curtain hooks. God, <laughs> Jesus, Th- that is the end of the movie, Alex. <laughs> well, he has the knife too that he took from the the pimp, but I, I guess he cut his gum and then fished it out. <laughs> get, get him to the doctor, man. <laughs> so these two decide they're going to go to the Florida Keys, right? Before shit hits the fan, and they get so why not? some. They get some disguises. They go see, is it North by Northwest? I think they go to see at the movie theater. Uh, Uh, At some point, it's the birds. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. I think it's like a Hitchcock marathon they're mm -hmm. doing. 
because I think I saw on the marquee it was like North by War- Northwest Vertigo and the Birds. But um, Alex, why Hitchcock and why not La Jetée? Because we can't have nice things, Julio. <laughs> they should have had him watching that, and Bruce yells at the screen, "What is this shit?" <laughs> All right, costumes. Bruce has long hair. He's got a mustache. Catherine is blonde now, and they head to the airport. Uh, the act of the twelve monkeys—they've their plan is hatched, and they've gone to the zoo and let all the animals out. And in the animal cage, trapped uh, Christopher Plummer. That's the extent of what they want to do. And so they get to the airport and they call the number and he doesn't know if it's the, the scientist or not, but leaves a message saying, you know, it's not the 12 monkeys. I'm going to stay here, but uh, that's not where it's coming from. And I, I've done my part. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and throughout this one, we're seeing visuals that are like the reoccurring vision that Bruce Willis has had throughout the movie. And also David Morse is there looking just really greasy and nasty. <laughs> And they kind of just put it together for themselves that it's not the 12 monkeys, but it's this guy because he had worked with uh, Christopher Plummer, Dr. Goins. And, you know, it's in the paper that he had been working on a chemical experiment with him. And it's just kind of like there's COVID because this guy, (laughs) this guy also has all these plane tickets and he's going to all the cities where the outbreak started. So this dude's just going to be traveling the world and just dropping vials and just, you know. Have fun with that. I just love that Madeline Stowe like recognizes him from from when she signed his book, and then the next thing that happens is she looks at the paper, and it's not even like the front page like headline. It's just like uh, th- that little corner on the top right. Where they're like, see inside, and it's just a picture of Christopher Plummer, and then David Morse is kind of like on the background, but she instantly puts it together. It's like, oh god, it's the end of the movie. It's happening. <laughs> Yeah, it's next to the thing that says on page seven, Apollo 13 review. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Jose shows back up and it's like, we got your message, but here's a gun in an airport and you need to finish the mission. That's <laughs> And Bruce Willis is like, are you fucking kidding me? You brought a gun to an airport? <laughs> <laughs> they were wrong. They realized they were wrong and they realized what the problem is. Bruce eventually makes a break for it, runs through security and... <laughs> The cops are there already looking for him, and he goes after David Morse, and before he can shoot him, the honkies take him down. That's my note. The honkies shot him. These cops just gunned down Bruce Willis in the airport in front of a a little boy who, through the visions throughout the movie, we thought the little boy was Bruce Willis, and he had experienced this firsthand. But no, uh, it was actually him that dies. He sees his own death, and you can take this as... He was a little boy at one point, and now he's the circle of life, but he really just had visions of his own death, and he dies there in the arms of uh, Madeline Stowe, who I guess was in so much love with him that she just took her eyes off the ball of the five million people that were potentially going to die if <laughs> David Morse got away. <laughs> David Morse, like, they don't, you know, because they shoot Bruce, and then David Morse just keeps running, makes it to his flight. They don't ground the flights. Dude, no shit. That was the number one thing I had of like, man, if someone takes a shit in the hallway at an airport, they're going to ground all the flights. So it's if some dude gets shot and killed, that game over, man. Um, okay, but let's let's try to 
I mean, I know we're going to fail, but this is, this is where the movie just kind of admits that it doesn't know what it's doing. Because the the whole point of the travels to the past, of Bruce Willis's mission and everything, was like, you can't change the past. All you're doing is intel. You're just going there to pick up intelligence, and so that then later... With that intelligence, we can develop an antidote, a cure for the virus in the future, and that's how we take the planet back. He was not going on a mission to change the way that things have happened, you know, to, to alter, which makes sense because, you know, you get into the, the whole time paradox thing. Like, if you change the past and then the future never happens, then that means that Bruce Willis is not in the future to travel back in time to change the past and so on. So, uh why is he given a gun? What is he supposed to do? Like giving him a gun means that he's actually going to change the 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 past. You know, it, it goes against everything that the movie's been saying before. Like, why do they? Why are they okay with him killing uh, David Morse now? And why didn't just why didn't they just tell him? Okay, then let's just kill Brad Pitt when they thought it was Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Yes. There's not a whole lot of sense to be made here. And then is the implication that the woman that sits next to David Morse, who's one of the scientists in the future, she is going to kill David Morse? I tried to figure out if that was the case or if she's a scientist in the future that caused the outbreak. And I don't know. I don't know, man. I had a hard time trying to put it together. Because she says she's insurance. Like, insurance in case Bruce Willis didn't kill him, then she was going to take care of business there? Ah, she's the the insurance policy, the backup plan. But again, if she cha- if she kills him there, then, you know. Shouldn't that be like Ving Rhames and not an unassuming middle-aged woman? <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't she hand him a glass of champagne? Yep. Like, yeah, she, bottoms she, up. She moves. She already has a glass when, she, when he's sitting, and then she pushes the glass towards his, his side. And then, right before we cut away, the 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 flight attendant brings her another glass. So, what did mm. she put in that glass? We don't know. Bottom line, again, you know, if if if, if you have to like, it's like the the uh, Austin Powers moment where he's talking about when he travels back in time, and he's like, you know what? Don't worry about trying to make sense of it. Yeah, <laughs> sit back and, and have a few laughs. Uh, that, that's kind of like what this is, except that there's not a whole lot of laughs. Except this movie clearly thinks it's better than you are. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be, because it's based on that 28-minute artsy black-and-white French short film that has a Criterion release. Yeah, and that was 12 Monkeys. Bruce couldn't make it. Uh, <laughs> a trend for films of the 90s that he starred in. <laughs> um. Uh, I think that we are ready for real talk, Alex. Let us move along. Let us get back in the transporter and try to get back to 1996 and do this justice. Uh, I love the music of the 20th century. 